Good morning, Hill City. How are you? <laughs> you guys are the best. Can we, can we give it a clap, love, for our Mansfield campus? I love those guys. Love though we love them. And how about our online campus? Can we clap for those guys? Love you guys. Thanks for joining in with us. And uh, we are in Dallas, Texas for all of our online fam. And we have finally had three days of nice weather. And so, uh, and so we only get three days of it. So we're soaking it all in. As long as we can have it, Jesus help us. We're starting today a brand new series entitled Signs. Everybody say signs. You can do better than that. Say signs. And um, as we jump in, uh, we'll, we'll do the next seven weeks. We'll camp out in this. And basically what we'll be doing is a run through the book of John or the gospel of John. Um, now, typically, uh, it's always fun to me, certain uh, you know, theologically, you know, encouraged people will come to me periodically and say, how come you don't just take a book of the Bible and just go line upon line? It's called didactic teaching. And, um, and I'll always remind them and say, you mean like Jesus did? And they go, yeah, exactly. And I go, that's not what Jesus did. And so, and so, but in this series, we probably will be closer to that than we typically are. Um, and as we jump in, let's go right now to John chapter 20. And this will be our premise for all seven weeks of, uh, of signs. John chapter 20 and verse 30 through 31. Uh, John speaking here in his gospel, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, John writes this in his second to last chapter. Now, if you know much about bi the Bible, the Bible was not written with chapters. We went back and, and, and um, added those later to be able to kind of be able to reference point pieces that are written. So John would have had a continuous letter here of the gospel of John and what had happened in the life of Jesus. And he points out here right towards the end of his book, he almost summarizes his gospel by saying, Jesus did so many miraculous signs and wonders, so many things. He goes, they're not recorded in this book. He goes, and then he's very specifically, he says, but those that are here, these, these have been written that you may believe. Everybody say believe. And not just believe that Jesus is the Christ, but by believing in him, by this process of believing him, you might have life. Everybody say life. Say it again. Say life. And so he points out that these are miraculous signs. Most scholars talk about these seven miraculous signs that John specifically points to. So of all the stuff that Jesus did, John said, I am extracting seven specific signs. He doesn't just call them miracles. He, called, he calls them miraculous signs. Now, if you understand, as we translated those words from Greek into English, that word sign, even for us, would have the connotation that it's pointing to something else. So what Jesus did in these moments is actually pointing to something else. So I'm going to give you these signs. I'm going to give you these miraculous moments with Christ. But really what they were all about were they were pointing towards something else. A sign points to something to come. A sign points to something to be observed, something to be adhered to, something to be absorbed. He says, and so, so what's going to happen here, he says, all throughout my gospel, I've been showing you these seven signs. 
and they have so much more to do than just that Jesus did a miracle. Jesus is actually pointing to something. And if you'll believe in this Jesus Christ, you will have the life of God in you. Now, I want to point out to you that this word life is not talking about the beat of your heart, the biological existence, the blood flowing through your veins, not life like that. He's not talking about the biological existence. He's, he's not talking about, um, you, you know, your heart's beating and, 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 you know, it's not even talking about the life to come. He's talking about the divine nature of Jesus. He's saying that you may have that kind of life, that divine nature. See, the Bible talks about how in this life, if we've given up all that we have for Christ, will we not also receive reward in this life, but also in the life to come? And what's supposed to happen to us as believers, as we come to Christ, our old nature is supposed to begin to die off, and our new nature, the divine nature of Jesus, is supposed to take over our lives. And so that's where this rub is always at in our Christendom. It's always this, I want to love God, and I do love God, but this nature of mine, my old nature, still seems to dominate. That's why I'm so tempted with this, or I'm still going back to these old ways. But he said, by believing, I'm, I've, I've given you these seven signs... They're going to point to you some truths. If you'll accept these truths, then you'll begin to walk in the divine nature of Jesus. And let's be honest, I want the divine nature of Jesus flowing through me, not the nature of Adam McCain. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Say amen. And so that's what he's saying. Do you want the divine nature? And what was his divine nature like? There was no fear in him. There was no insecurity in him. There was no, there was no, there was no um, lust or perversion in him. There was no greed or selfish ambition in him. His divine nature becoming a part of our nature. And he says, listen, I put this out there for you so that you could see his divine nature and begin to absorb it and become like him. Are you with me today? Say yes. So these seven signs that we're going to go through, as we study them, what should happen is we should begin to notice his divine nature and begin to absorb his divine nature, even by studying what Jesus did miraculously. Are you there? Say yes. So let's start with the first one today. And this is this miraculous moment where Jesus turns water into wine in John chapter 2. So John chapter 1, he opens up, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. But in chapter 2, he moves into verse 1, into this moment. And I'll read it to you. Is it okay if we read the scripture in church today? Is that all right? Are you comfortable reading the Bible in church? Can that be? All right. Go ahead and turn on your Bible. So John chapter 2 and verse 1. We'll put it on the screen as well. It says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what? Does your concern have to do with me? My, that's, what's your, that's your problem, not my problem. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to do, do it. Excuse me. Whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of ceremonies or the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who drawn the water out knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom over. And he said to them, said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs 
Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest his glory. And look at the last piece. And his disciples believed in him. I'm going to break this down a little bit for you so you can kind of get culture and get understanding, kind of put yourself, because as you read it as a, uh, as a modern Westerner, you're going to miss some of the points. So I'm going to break down some of the things that were actually happening here so that you could understand, and then also draw out from there the, the teachings of this sign, the, the, the life lesson that Jesus is trying to get us to understand through this moment of the supernatural that he did at this wedding. So starting in the first part, it says the place where this all happened is on the third day, a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Let me just point this out. Cana of Galilee is not Los Angeles. Cana of Galilee is not New York. It's not even DFW. Cana of Galilee, that's out in Cleburne somewhere. This is country folk. This is just good old hardworking blue collar. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? This is good old folk. Jesus does not do his first miracle recorded miracle in a place where everyone could rally around him. He goes out to the simple people. He does his first miracle recorded in history that we know of. He does his first miracle at a wedding in Cana, out in the middle of the country folk and the simple folk. He's not going to get any new followers by doing a miracle here. He's not going to get any new likes by doing a miracle here. He's not going to be invited to speak at the Senate by doing a miracle here. He's just doing this out, in the, and it's real critical, and the Bible points it out very clearly to us, out in Cana of Galilee, out in this place with all these country folks. And what that says to me is that Jesus did not live for the honor of men. He didn't care if you liked him or didn't like him. He was on a mission to seek and save that which is lost. He was not kissing up to nobody. He wasn't brown-nosing nobody. Come on, you staying with me? He was not trying to get followers or likes. He came to do the work of the Father on the earth, and that is to turn the hearts of men to God their Father and their Creator. And it talks about this occasion, on one occasion, at this, if you will, this wedding ceremony, a marriage feast. Now, more than likely, Jesus was invited because someone on either the groom's side or the bride's side, like any of you have been invited, uh, probably was some type of connection family-wise. Um, you know, he had, um, you know, obviously Mary had probably siblings and Joseph probably had siblings. And so this is their country family that lives out in the country somewhere, and they've been invited to it. In fact, where he was at and where he went to Cana would have been almost a two-day journey. So he wasn't just invited by himself, but whatever group of disciples he had at that point. Now, some scholars said, said he already has about five of the disciples of the 12 apostles following him at this point. May have been all 12. There's not real clarity on it. But he was invited along with his disciples, which is a big deal, that you're invited to a wedding feast, to a, to a, to a marriage feast. Now, to understand ancient time wedding feasts, they would last somewhere between four and six days. Okay, and you frustrated that you had to drive an hour and a half out in the middle of the country because all these millennials want to get married in a barn, you know, with a pond in the background and ducks and a little something like that. And then they're going to have a three-minute wedding ceremony and then they're going to dance till 5 o'clock in the morning and want you to go to work the next day, right? So, so imagine what these guys are going through. So you shut down your business for about a week to go to a wedding. You shut down your affairs 
If you got newborns, I don't know if you leave them with somebody. I don't know if you bring them. Probably you, you did that. But this was an all day. And you would stay in either local you know, hotel type places or that family would make room for the guests to stay on their property. And so they literally would work for years, months and months and months, almost a year to prep for this wedding. The groom's family would have done all the prep. They would have done all the preparations, and then the groom goes and gets his bride, and then they partay for about four to six days. And so with that being said, the disciples and Jesus have been there. It's obviously somewhere halfway or so about through these four to six days when Mary pulls Jesus aside and says they're out of wine. Now, the reason why this is so significant is because this would be an embarrassment on this family, that they either didn't prep properly or they did something wrong. And what's going to happen from this point forward, you, you know how communities are, they're going to be known as the family that ran out of wine in the middle of the, of the partay. They're going to be the guys that's like, remember when we went to, we went to the Smiths thing, man, man, y'all ain't had nothing, man. We had to go get our own. We had to go buy Sprite and had some, had get some coffee. Y'all ran to everything halfway through. Like, what kind of wedding is that? And that's what was going to happen. And so Mary is carrying this. She may be carrying it because she's one of the hostesses. Uh, because you would incorporate multiple people like we even do today. Hey, would you be in charge of the flowers? Hey, would you oversee the such and such? And so Mary probably had some type of role and felt the responsibility. And so in this panic moment, now, you've got to understand, there is no way to go buy more grape juice. There is no way to go make more, you know, wine or whatever it is. In this moment, we are toast. We are done. But there's one person that I know, Mary says, who can fix the whole thing. And so she pulls him aside. And I love Jesus' response to her. Woman. Now, this is a very critical piece, and especially for you guys that came out of Catholicism. He's very firm with her. What does this have to do with me? And what most of us and most scholars would point to is that Jesus is clearly defining the position. You may be my mama, but I'm your Lord. And also, if Mary is divine, as some other religions have said, then why didn't she turn the water into wine? Because she's not divine. She's like us. She's just human. And she, you, don't, you don't pray to her to get God to move. Just want to point that out to you. Or she would have prayed to herself. <laughs> or she'd have done it herself. She went and got the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father except through him. Are you tracking with me? So she goes and gets her son, yet her master and her Messiah and her Lord. And so Jesus puts her in proper perspective. Why are you bothering me with what is of your problem? That's not my problem. But I love what Mary does. There is nowhere in this passage of a conversation that goes back and forth with her and him. She then does not say, now Jesus, now you remember when you was four years old and I had to whoop your backside? Don't make me pull that out again. We won't have nothing like that. We don't see her being manipulative. I carried you for nine months. They thought I was a hoe for a whole year. Talking about the Holy Spirit brought you into this place. I did this for you. I did this for you. And now you won't even help me get a little bit of help for these poor people. He, she doesn't manipulate them. Come on, somebody. Because we got to learn how to engage with Jesus. 
She doesn't, she doesn't manipulate the situation. She doesn't, she doesn't pull on his heartstrings. She doesn't cause him to feel bad about the situation. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? This is not my time. Now, this is a critical piece. For he says, my time has not yet come. What Jesus is pointing out is, sweetheart, you know the moment that I do this supernatural thing, the clock has now started for me to go to the cross. Up until this point, I'm not on the road to the cross yet. I've just been a carpenter. You know, we've been preparing for my ministry to start. But if I do this right now, I cross over a line, and now I'm on my way to the cross. Because once I publicly do something supernatural, once the Messiah steps into his, his purpose, it starts the clock, and my purpose is to die. I was born to die. And so once I start this, you realize what you've asked me to do at a wedding. You understand? Like, this is the place you're asking me to step up into my purpose. And I just need you to understand, my time has not quite come. She does not respond to him. She just turns to the servants, to the, to the helpers that are there and say, do whatever he says to do. And she walks off. <laughs> now, can you imagine? So Jesus is standing there like, and the servants are like, what do you want to do? What, what are we going to do? I mean, this thing is happening. They're all outside. Ding, 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 ha, wedding songs, whatever they're doing. <sighs> well, we got the drink around here. And it's, it's happening. There's probably a few hundred people at this thing, and they, they're going to be there. They've already probably, if they've already drank all they, they had to drink, that means they've already been there a little bit. Okay, if they're already out of it, and they had planned for four to six days, and they're already out of it. They're probably two, maybe three days into this four, maybe five-day feast, festival, marriage, banquet kind of thing. And Jesus turns to the guys that are standing there, and he goes, hmm, see these jugs here? See these stone? Now, the Bible calls them ceremonial jars. What they were was yearly... Um, they would, they would literally, they would, um, they would ceremonially cleanse themselves from the sins that they had committed. So these jugs, stone, they, so they're hewn out of stone. They're not clay pots, they're stone pots, and the Bible makes it real clear. What they are is they're ceremonial. I know some of you maybe, uh, you know, you had your, uh, you, when, when some of you were uh, at the Catholic church and you had the little gown that you put on your little girl or your little boy for their little, for their little baptism, you know, that little gown that they're not allowed to ever wear again because it's this ceremonial piece. Or some of you, maybe to illustrate what these were like, some of you have this stuff called fine china at your house and you never use it. <laughs> Christmas, you might pull it out. So that's what this was. So it set off over in a corner because they're in a back room having this conversation. And Jesus looks at these ceremonial pots or these, and they're probably about this. They hold 20 to 30 gallons, the scripture says, and there's six of them. Now, if you understand Jewish culture, they are not to be used for anything but for these ceremonial moments of cleansing. And so for Jesus to say, go put some water in them. The servant standing there would have been like, in those? Like, have you lost your mind? It would be like taking mama's fine china and, and, and heating up a hot dog in the microwave on it. Like, are you crazy? Like, somebody going to die. In fact, if they got dirty of any sort, 
They could not be used right away. They had to literally, the objects, these jars, these giant, you know, if you almost like planter looking things, they would have had to have a season of ceremonial cleansing before they could be used for ceremonial washing. And so, and so what Jesus is asking to do is going to cause these to, to then have to go through a purification system before they can use it again, which is crazy. And so he says to the servants, hey, go fill them up with water. The fact that they said, okay, proves something was happening in real time here. The fact that they didn't go, who do you think you are? Don't ask us to go fill it. You know you can't touch these. Are you crazy? You can't use it for a moment like this. Something's happening already in their faith in the Messiah Jesus who has not done a public miracle that we know of up until this moment. They go, they fill these 20-gallon, 30-gallon, if you will, you know, pots, uh, jars with water. And he says, hey, take one of those little pitchers, dip it in it, and go bring it to the guy who's in charge. And they're like, okay. And they take it and they bring it to him. And the Bible says that when he drinks of it, he was like, oh, whoo, what? And so the little groom's sitting there on his little thing next to his little wife, and everybody's dancing and bringing presents. And he says, hey, bro, bro, come here. He's like, now you know the way this thing works is you put the cheap junk up first, excuse me, the expensive stuff up first, and you slip in the cheap junk as it goes along. But you've kept the very best to last. Now, I want to, you know where I'm going to go with y'all. I want to deal with this wine thing for just a moment. All right? I'm going to put some, I'm going to teach you some things so that you don't have misappropriations of what the Word of God says. Well, first and foremost, in our English translation, we use the word wine. But the original Greek is a word named, it's, it's oinos. It's O-I-N-O-S, oinos, to represent wine. Now, in the Greek, they only had the one word, oinos. In the Hebrew, they had four different words to represent wine as we translate it. But what their oinos would have represented would be both fermented and unfermented grape juice. That's what they would have been talking. So they would use the same word sometimes to talk about alcoholic wine or grape juice. And they would use the same word to represent non-alcoholic or unfermented grape juice. We read it and we're like, wine of our era, let's go. And so let me just help you understand. They're not, they're not necessarily talking about fermented wine. Now, if I could also help you on this, we recognize that throughout Scripture that there are those who drink fermented wine, that drinking alcoholic beverages is not a sin, but drunkenness is a sin. And I have a surefire way. Pastor, I don't want to be in sin and drunkenness. How can you help me? Yes, I have a great plan for you. Don't drink. That's how you don't fall into our leadership here at Hill City because we don't want to be a stumbling block to you. We don't drink, not because we're holy, praise the Lord. We have sacrificed that so that when you look at us and you don't have to say, well, you know, I saw PA in there. He was, he was, he was, he was knocking back some long, long bottles back, in, back over there at that, at that uh, wings place the other night. You know, I know he probably didn't get drunk, but boy, if he can drink two, why can't I drink ten? So that's why we as a leadership corps just say, hey, we would rather set that aside. So if I could point out to you and help you understand, is he talking about fermented drink or is he talking about unfermented drink? Now, let me explain to you how, because you, you don't even know where it comes from. You just go buy it at the store. 
You don't know where your chicken nuggets come from. You have never seen. Take your kids to a place where they kill the chickens and then help them see it a little bit. That'll help you understand. So, so where does this wine come from? How do they make it? Well, they obviously make it from grapes. We're talking about ancient times, 2,000 years ago as this is transpiring. How did they make it? Well, they would squeeze the grapes, get the juice. Now, what typically would then happen is they would drink that fresh grape juice, and in that moment, freshness, it's at its sweetest. All you wine connoisseurs will know this. But as you let it ferment, it becomes bitter and then intoxicating. Okay? And so... In ancient times, they had a way of keeping it from rotting. What they would do is they would boil the grape juice and the grapes, and they would create a paste. Then they would keep that paste in jars, and then they would add that paste to their water. In fact, they would call it grape honey. Some of your grandmas used to do blackberry honeys and, or you know, grapes or, uh, uh, excuse me, um, jellies and things like that. So they would make like a paste. And so that throughout the year when they didn't have harvest grapes, they could still have something besides just water. They would also, there was a second technique that they used, and they would take the grapes and they would literally dehydrate them, add it to olive oil, and make a powder. So they had both a paste and a powder that throughout the year they could add to water to give the water some flavor. The moment that they boiled it, the fermentation process stops, and it no longer is, when it added to water, would make you intoxicated. When they would, when they would dehydrate it, add it to some olive oil, and make a powder out of it, it would no longer have the ability to make you intoxicated. But if they let the grape juice ferment... In the, in, the, in the fermenting process of putting them, whether in the skins or if they could even, I don't even think they could put them in jars in those days because they had no way to seal it and it would burst them. And so they would put them in these skins and they would ferment and that would be intoxicating. Now the question is, which kind of oinus are they talking about here? Well, let me just ask you a question. Do you think it's in the nature of Jesus Christ to help people who've already gotten drunk for three, four days to get more drunk? That's my Jesus. Woohoo! Uh, no. Come on, guys. Especially when the scripture says that wine is deceptive and beer is a brawler, and those who participate in it are not wise. Not to mention that the priests were not allowed to drink any kind of intoxicating drink in times of worship. And this would have been one of the sacraments. A wedding is a, is a time of worship before the Lord. And so, what we see here is that Jesus so honors. A husband and a wife coming together as a family in marriage that he does his first miracle and his miracle of turning water into an intoxicating drink I think is a misappropriation of what's really happening here in fact when he says this is the greatest you've left the best to last well our carnal minds 2,000 years later we're thinking he's got the most expensive fermented wine he could have ever made actually for them the more valued juice would be in its sweetest form, which is the moment the grapes are picked and the moment that the juice is squeezed out of it. So you say, well, I studied under brother so-and-so or, you know, rabbi such-and-such, and he says this. That's all great. But just think through the nature of who Jesus was. Did Jesus get them in sin by making them drunk? Come on, guys. That's not what's happening here. Jesus does a miracle in their midst and the people don't even know he's done it they don't even know he's done it can you imagine being the groom and the guy pulls you over and says you have done what have you done you've saved the best to last and he's like 
Sure I did. He has no idea what just happened. In fact, the Bible says the only ones who know is the servants, obviously Mary, and his disciples. And then it closes out that piece and says, and so his disciples, as they see this supernatural miracle, put their faith in him. I've been through a lot of things. You have too. And it's those daily little simple miracles that have helped me put my faith in him. That there is a being beyond this little earth. That there is a supernatural power at work in this earth. He is the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, and the power that rose Christ from the dead. And that by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, I have access to the person of the Holy Spirit. And the miracles of God become evident in my life. Every, this is the divine nature that in this moment they see this in this man. Jesus, the divine nature. Wow. And so from this, I would like to point out to you what I would call life lessons. And that's what we'll do at the end of each one of these signs that he performed, life lessons. Here's the first life lesson I believe is happening here or the coming into his nature. That is, number one, Jesus did not live for the validation of men. This is critical. It is time for you and me to get free from what everybody thinks about us. We have an entire church over the last five, six years who's lost its voice because we're more concerned about getting likes on social media. And I'm, talk I'm, not talking about the I'm not talking about this building. I'm not talking about the name Hill City. I'm talking about you, the church, me, the church. We've lost our power in the community because we want them to like us. And can I just tell you, sin does not like righteousness. It doesn't like it. And not only that, but carnality does not like obedience to the word. Are you with me? Say yes. Jesus was not there to be validated by them. He came to validate them, to bring them into newness of life, to get them free from the sin that so easily entangles them. This is why Jesus showed up. He showed up so that they could have freedom from the sin and the power. He did not care about them validating him. If he would have wanted them to validate him, he'd have went to the big city. He'd have went to Jerusalem. He'd have went where there are millions of people. He'd have, he'd have gone to a bigger place. He would not have camped out for his first miracle out in the country somewhere where nobody's even going to talk about it. And then not only that, he didn't even tell him he did it. He didn't even take credit for the supernatural moment that happened. And you know, you know, we're not like that, are we? We're not like that. You know what happens at work? When you was a part of a project and then they and then they and the, and the boss is up there, I just want to thank Jim and Susan for what they did on this. And you're like, whoa, what about me? I was in on that. You know, the last 10 minutes of a movie is credits. Have you ever watched those for once? Every now and then when you're bored, watch the credits at the end of a movie. He's talking about old John Smith who held the camera number seven and scene number four. Or the, or the, or the, I love that, I love the, you know, the police officer who got hit by a car. Like, who, we never even saw that actor. Who was he? But he's got his name up there. He's in the credits. We want to get our credit. Jesus didn't care about getting credit from men. And this is critical because he tells Peter very clearly, Peter, you literally love the approval of men, so you'll have no part with me. You and I have to get free from the approval of men that we need everyone to validate us. Listen, you are putting so much strain on your marriages because you want them to validate you. Jesus validates you. Jesus, and you want them to be Jesus for you and want them to, and, and to, to, to fill those empty places in your heart. Friend, can I tell you something? Your spouse cannot do that for you. Only Jesus can fill those empty spaces in your heart. Him and him alone. Here brings me to the second life lesson. You still with me? Say yes. And that is Jesus honors marriage and family relationships. 
And we live in a season now where we see great movements that are trying to destroy what they call the nuclear family. Read their mission statements. Good things that had good ideologies publicly. But when you go and you dig down into what they really want to accomplish, that they want to destroy the nuclear family. Can I tell you something? It was God who created Adam. It was God who separated out of Adam part of who he was and created Eve. And he's God who put them together and said, now that you are one flesh. And, and, and Adam said, she is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And God said, you now will come together. It was God who said that a man should leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. It was God who set up the marriage unit. So everything that fights against that with transgenderism, LGBTQ, all these things that you want to destroy family, you need to understand they are acting out against God's plan. You know what I'm saying? So the first miracle that Jesus did was in the midst of validating a man and a wife coming together in holy matrimony. It's the first miracle he did. It's not by accident. God didn't do anything by accident. Hey, I think I'll just go, uh, hey, what are you doing today? Well, let's go over to a wedding and do a miracle. It's not at all how this thing transpired. In his foresight, and this is the sign, and he says, and, and, and he says there are many things that Jesus did. Back to our, our chapter 20. Many things that Jesus did, but I have recorded these for you so that by believing in him, you may have his divine nature. His divine nature points to that the union between a husband and a wife is God's plan for the earth. I mentioned this to you a few months ago. God could have created humanity and created the way that humanity began to continue to propagate totally outside of a husband and a wife coming together in union. He could have just had a spawn like, you know, I don't know, like mushrooms out in the field somewhere. But he didn't. In his divine purpose, he said the only way to continue to propagate the earth for there to be people who continue to be born with the death rate is for a husband and wife to come together. That seed of the man comes into the egg of, of the woman and they create a specialized being. That only their union in that moment can create. That's why your children are different. Right? Because it's a special moment in time where your chromosomes line up in a special way to create that special human. That's why all humanity is special. That's why injustice towards different cultures, that's why injustice towards people that we dehumanize is wrong and it's against God's way. That's why killing babies in the womb is wrong against God's way because all life is precious to him. Why? Because they all have purpose. Sorry for my rant, but the truth of the matter is he does a divine moment of supernatural movement in the midst of what is a marriage between a husband and a wife. He honors marriage and family relationships. And no matter what our culture says, and, and, I, and I have some very special friends that I love dearly, <clears throat> love dearly, who oppose God's plan for marriage in reference to their sexuality. And I love them dearly, and I'm believing for them to know the living God and come into that rightness. But at the same time, <clears throat> I resist the concept, and I resist the ideology, because it's not God's plan. But even though I love you, and I love you, and I understand that you're struggling with your, with your identity, and I understand that you believe a certain way, but your belief ultimately is wrong and you will give an account one day when we all stand before the king of kings and the lord of lords but i love you i love you so much and i want you to know the truth i was blinded for years you were blinded for years but then the, we knew the truth and the truth set us free brings me to third life lesson you still with me say yes you still love me say yes number three faith is more than asking it's about believing and obeying excuse me it's about obeying. 
More than just asking, it's about obeying. There will be no supernatural miracle if those servants don't obey. I want you to, again, I want to bring it back to that moment where the Messiah says, go fill up these six stone water pitchers. What do they weigh minus 20 gallons of water? This is an effort. This is, this is, they didn't do it in five minutes. This thing took probably a couple hours. Had to drag those suckers all the way to the well. This dude wants to fill up these ceremonial pots. Can you believe this? I don't know who he is, but something happened when he started talking. I know you felt that. Oh, my God. Maybe that's who he is. He might be our God. Hmm. Finally, get them all carried over. They're there. And then he, hey, we got the water in those things like you asked. All right, we'll go take a dip some, something in and go. And they had to obey it. See, here's the problem with most of our faith. Faith, we ask, and when we don't see the immediate results, we give up. Most of us want to do what Mary didn't do. But Jesus, I have been faithful to you. And I have prayed. And I went to church last year one time. And I tithe in 2019. And I, you owe me this. Mary doesn't do any of that. <laughs> Look at her faith. Her faith is all based on this whole thing. I've now asked, and then what does she do? She sets up the scenario to receive a miracle. Pay attention. She asks, and then she sets up the scenario, her surroundings, to receive a miracle. She doesn't try to make the miracle happen in her own strength. God, I just know she's the one I'm supposed to marry. And I'm going to just start, I'm just going to, I'm going to follow her everywhere until she says yes. You little creepy. See, that's your problem right there. You stalker. Cyber stalker. You're so weird. No. And so, and so literally Mary backs up and she says, just do whatever he says to do. She creates a scenario for Jesus to be Jesus. So faith has so much more than just the asking. There is the obeying, waiting for him to tell you. So when God gives me things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't just go immediately run out. I back up and say, no, Lord, you got to show me how you want me to obey you here. Do you, want me to, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? We've got a word from the Lord three, four years ago that he wanted us to have a campus in Arlington. And so we started at it. You know, we started, hey, anybody want to go to Arlington? Three or four of you are like, Yay! The rest of you are like, no. <clears throat> and so we just said, okay, Lord, we're going oh, we're, we're to start praying into it. We start praying into it. So this, even this past Friday night, as we did a reset, a night of worship, we did it in Arlington right off the campus of UTA at a coffee shop. And what we were doing was we were sowing seeds in the spirit of prayer and ministry and crying out to God for this city. And, Lord, whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. We just backed up and said, but the Lord gave us the coffee shop. We didn't have that a year ago. And we started meeting there here at periodically. This is our second time to have a night of worship there. And people just seeding the space, believing God. Until he tells us to do something else, we're not going to do anything else. We're going to obey. We gave him the space to do the miracle. We're not trying to force the miracle. Are you with me? Say yes. I'm, trying, I'm speaking to somebody. I'm hoping you're getting it. Here's a fourth and final, if you will, kind of life lesson from this. And that is Jesus cares about the little things in your life. I need to help you. He cares about that your, that your starter doesn't work. 
He cares about that. I don't know, some of you maybe were raised in a church or had some ideology that, you know, don't pray for that, don't ask God for that because, you know, he's real busy. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to bother the Lord. The Lord cares. The Lord cares that you have someone at work that tries to embarrass you every day. He cares about those little things. He cares that you have this thing in your heart that one day you want to go to Greece. He cares about that. He cared that these people were going to run out of good juice and that they were going to be embarrassed. He actually cared about that. And so he actually made a way and did something supernatural because he cares for them. See, the miracles aren't just about the blind eyes or the dead raising. This miracle specifically was about the potential of embarrassment. And he loved them and he didn't want them to have to go through that. And so I would teach you to implore the Lord. Say, Lord, I know this is not a big thing. But Lord, for me, if you could work in this, if you could help me with this, he actually cares about those little things in your life. Why? Because he knows you and he wants to be close to you. And just like someone you're in love with, you care about the little things about them too. And he cares not just about the big things, but also about the little thing. <clears throat> Some of you think you shouldn't bother him. But that just proves that you've got, gotten close enough to him yet because you know there's no bothering the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's not bothered. He enjoys his engagement with his children. He loves and he tells us, ask and you shall receive. Seek me and you will find me. And you need to know this. I don't know what some old preacher told you or some ex-spouse told you, but Jesus cares about you. And he cares for you. And he loves you. And he wants to be there, not just in the hard times, but in the fun times. And in the enjoyment times. And in the sad times. He's an ever-present help in time of trouble. He cares about you. And if you don't get that, if you miss that, his first miracle, the couple didn't even know he did it. He's doing miracles for you that you don't even know he's doing for you. You don't even, that's how much he loves you. They had no idea that they almost were, the, they were almost the laughing stock of Cana for the next 40 years. At the Smiths, remember at the Smiths, man, what were we like two days in? Man, that was terrible. Man, what happened to them? I don't know. I think somebody, somebody must have stole that stuff. There he come. They, the wineless wedding. Remember the wineless wedding? Every day at work. Yeah. They got any more of that Coke in the Coke machine? I don't know. Probably not. You know old Smith over there, he done probably stole it. He ain't never got enough drink at any of his parties. Jesus diverted the shame that they were going to feel, and they never even knew it. He cares for you, and he's working on your behalf. And you need to know this. Why? Because he's your Messiah. He's the one who loved you when no one else could love you. And he's the one who's got you right in the palm of his hand. Would you stand with me quickly across the room? So honored that you would take the time to join us remotely and to celebrate the goodness of Jesus. I hope that word spoke to you. I hope that you were blessed today, and I hope that you are encouraged 
to go forth in the confidence of Jesus this week, wherever you are. If you made a decision today uh, to serve Jesus for the first time, we want to celebrate with you. Would you text DECIDED to 469-606-2684? And uh, we want to respond and again, just connect with you and celebrate the beginning of an amazing discipleship journey with Jesus. Don't forget, next week we are here again, same place, same time, 9 o'clock and 11. And until then, we hope you have an amazing week.